Imagine you're a religious scholar right after the election of Donald Trump and the new administration. How would you participate in democracy? What would you want to say to our new government? Well, Andrea Weiss helped to uh, put together a book called American Values, Religious Voices. A hundred days, a hundred letters. She'll be on Good God talking about that. Stay tuned. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm George Mason, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome to the program today, Andrea Weiss, Rabbi Andrea Weiss, who is also the provost and professor of Hebrew Bible at the Hebrew Union College and Jewish Institute and Religion in New York City. Welcome, we're so Thank glad you. to have you. Now, really, what I would like to do is show everyone and tell those who are listening about this book that you have produced as the co-editor. It's called American Values, Religious Voices, 100 Days, 100 Letters. And it's been quite a wonderful project that uh, I think has capacity to be enriching to people in congregations and in book clubs and in all sorts of ways across the nation, way past the first hundred days. But when we talk about a hundred days and a hundred letters, tell everybody about the background of how this came to be, Andrea. Sure, thank you for inviting me to share this project. So this is a project that came about, um, the idea first started percolating in the first days following the 2016 presidential election. Mm -hmm. Um, and I thought about a couple of forces went in to lead to this idea. So one is um, my own observation during the campaign that it felt like a lot of the core American values that I had always taken for granted, religious liberty, justice, <coughs> equality, truth, kindness, and decency, were called into question. And the foundations, the ideological foundations of our country no longer seemed as secure as I, I've sensed, um, as I had always felt they were. And it occurred to me that a lot of those core values are connected to our different religious traditions and embedded in our, rooted in our different religious scriptures. And in my work at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, I'm a, I'm a professor of Bible. And in the days following the election, uh, actually the Thursday after the election, so two days after the election, I was scheduled to teach a class. I teach a team teach a class called Teaching Bible to Adults. And my lesson for that day was on the biblical concept of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Oh. And it felt like really the wrong, the wrong lesson in the wrong spirit for that day. And so um, my co-teacher, Rabbi Lisa Grant, and I decided that we would scrap the lesson plan and instead share with our students. These are students who are studying to become reform rabbis, cantors, and Jewish educators. And we would just share with them the religious text that we were turning to on, on that day, given everything that had unfolded uh, that week after the election. And I, at the end of the class, I said to my students, this is why what they're doing matters and why the hard work that they're putting in studying the Bible is important mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that they can access the wisdom and the riches of our Jewish tradition for themselves and for those they serve, particularly at a time when people are seeking wisdom and guidance and hope mm -hmm. from our religious traditions. And those ideas kind of coalesced. And uh, while walking my dog one day in the days following the election, I thought, what if we could get 100 scholars of religion from all across the country, all different religions, and if each could write one letter that we could send to Washington for the first 100 days of the Trump administration that would articulate 
some of our core American values and the way that they're connected to our different religious traditions. So I had that idea and I walked down the street to my neighbor, Mark Smith, who's a Bible scholar at Princeton Theological Seminary. And I knocked on his door and I shared with him the idea and uh, Mark Smith said to me, I think it's a good idea and I'll help you. Mm -hmm. So with that support and encouragement, the Sunday after the election, I was at the Hebrew Union College in New York where we had a symposium. And I uh, made my way to our president, Rabbi Aaron Pankin of Blessed Memory, and I shared with him my idea and he said, let me think about it. And he came back the next day, I asked him if he would um, provide financial backing. I wasn't sure what it would cost, I actually had no clue, but I figured we would need a student intern, someone would help me send the letters, I'd probably need a website. Um, so I need some kind of money. And I asked him if he would support it. And for Rabbi Pankin, a big hallmark of his presidency was the idea of thought leadership. The idea that as scholars of religion, we had something to say. Those of us who are studying these ancient texts, they actually have something to speak to, a way yes. to speak to our contemporary issues. So um, he thought about it, and the next day he said, I'll come back and support it. So I had the encouragement, I had the financial backing, and I then reached out to my friend Lisa Weinberger, who is a graphic designer. Uh, she runs a graphic design and branding firm called uh, Masters Group Design in Philadelphia. And I sent her a long email explaining the idea, and I didn't have any idea, clue what I was asking of her. I wasn't even on social media at the time. Um, I thought we would need a website. I wasn't sure what else. And I asked for her help and sent her a long email. And the next day, she wrote me back, and she said, I'm in. Wow. And so we end up with this beautiful book, uh, and she has illustrated it, and it is uh, beautifully done in the colors of red, white, and blue. Yep. I think we should you know, easily see that as, as a, a kind of a patriotic gift yeah. uh, that comes from the religious community. But it's probably important to uh, let people know that while it originated uh, within your tradition and uh, reflections about what Judaism has to offer in this, uh, the people who wrote this, of the 100, it's quite a diverse group, actually. Absolutely. So the, another piece of the, the putting together of the project was uh, less than two weeks after the election, I was uh, in San Antonio, Texas, for the uh, the uh, Association of Biblical, the Society of Biblical Literature, American Academy of Religion, and I went with a notebook and I just started pitching my <laughs> ideas to anyone because I I'm a Hebrew Bible scholar at a Jewish seminary. I have a pretty limited network, and I just started reaching out to people, asking them what do they think of the idea? Would they yes. be interested in writing it? Do they? Who else would they know who might want to be involved in the project? And I came back, and then I got an advisory committee together, and we started sending out invitations. And that's how we were able to get a very broad um, collection mm -hmm. of, of letter writers. And it took us, um, we, we started sending the letters out in early December, and we had till January 20th, which was d one day one of the campaigns. So we had about 50 days yes. uh, to get 100 letter writers. And it took those full, a full 50 <laughs> days and about 180 invitations, and finally we got um, 100 letter writers. And, and of course, 100 days is a sort of typical first 100 days of an administration, yeah. so it makes sense that you were trying to help establish something in the mindset of our new government, right? That that these are the these are the ways that we should be thinking about how to connect the role of government and what is the DNA of this country uh, with respect to uh, values and, uh, and, and, and our religious uh, contribution to them? Right? 
So uh, each of these letters doesn't focus just on a particular thing. They were pretty much given, each person was given the ability to write what he or she wanted to, is that correct? Well, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll read, I'll tell you exactly what we, what we asked of people. We said, uh, when, when I, in the invitation that we yes. sent to the, to the potential writers, we, we asked, what issues animate you at this particular moment in our nation's history? What passages from your religious tradition have you been thinking about in the wake of the election? How does your religious heritage speak to, those, to the matters that concern you most? What message rooted in the texts you teach and study would you most like to, like to deliver to our national leaders and to a wider interfaith audience? Okay. So we asked people to think about what, what was concerning them, yes. you know, what was keeping them up at night, and how do those, how do what they were, their concerns, and when they think about, and, and when they think about what it is that, that makes America America, how do those connect to their own religious texts and traditions? So we asked everyone to, to quote or to use uh, scriptural texts, yes. kind of scripture defined broadly. Yes, and in 350 words. Yes. Yes, which, which makes it very manageable too, and m makes it something that you actually hope the people you send it to, uh, th they'll not get discouraged at a long letter, they can read, they can read this. Uh, and I think we should say, first of all, whom did you send it to? So the letters are addressed to, uh, they're all addressed, Dear President Trump, Vice President Pence, members of the Trump administration, and the 115th Congress. So how many people would that be overall? Well, what we ended up doing, we sent it to the White House every morning via email, and also um, I purchased a list of all the chiefs of staff and legislative directors of all the members of the 115th Congress. So we okay. had an original list of 1,023 people. Wow. That, that would all get at 5 a.m. an email with that day's with that day's letter. Wonderful. And so I, I've read quite a number of them and these, these are not people who are, uh, well, they're, they're not people who are getting up and preaching from pulpits every Sunday. These, uh, these are PhDs yeah. in all, academic leaders who don't have the normal pulpit from which they can speak into the world uh, they normally are working for each other and in the academy, and essentially you gave them a pulpit. That's that's exactly right, and that was sort of my hunch with this project that mm -hmm. um, biblical scholars are not uh, scholars of religion are not generally on the forefront of our public conversation, and only a small fraction of them were on Twitter or Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, and I really felt my hunch with the project was that at this moment in our nation's history that scholars had something to say about and really who, who knew our sacred texts in a very deep mm -hmm. way and that they could take those texts that they knew so well and with a sense, um, sense of authority and connect them to, to the issues of the day. Um, and because, you know, and that was one of the, the limiting factors that every, all of the authors have a PhD. Right. Um, first of all, on a practical level, just limited the number of people that we were looking at. Yes. Um, if we were to include clergy, that it would just be such a wide Some of us are clergy audience. with PhDs. Well, so that, that's, and, that's, and a lot of people yes. in the book, too. Yes, okay. So right. our, our, our dual, myself included. Right, so, yes. um, uh -huh. so, that's, so that's helped us kind of figure out who, who we were gonna turn to right. to look for wisdom. Good. Now, um, we are in a moment, though, uh, and, and since November of 2016, when there's a lot of conversation about the cultural polarization that happens around kind of the, 
the populist movement that's happening on the one hand, and they're feeling that uh, somehow they have been uh, dismissed by the educated elites of society. So here we have a book uh, that is from the educated elites, right? And is appealing to those who are elected officials. Uh, and yet the tone and spirit of it um, is attempting, it seems to me as I read it, to actually try to take account of the fact that we are one people as a nation and are not supposed to be creating these divisions. So while the uh, critique is made of the educated elites not accounting for the populist movement, these letters actually try to include them, I think, in listening to them as well. Well, I'd say that, uh, well, first of all, we asked our authors to make their letters accessible, and that was one of my job as right. editors to make sure that uh, mm -hmm. some of them were more, more heavily edited in that regard than okay. others. But that, and that was, you know, you mentioned the 350 word count, which was both to make it accessible and readable, but yes. also to make it a, a doable ask on the part of the, the mm -hmm. authors as well. Um, the other reason the 350 word limit was important was because I physically printed out two copies of every letters one to the address directly to President Trump and one to Vice President Pence. So it literally had to fit on a page. On a website, yes. you could go as long as you wanted. Right. But, uh, and for the book, too, they had to fit on a page. Um, and because uh, we wanted it to be sort of an, an, a, a really concise, yes. powerful message yes. that was important to us. But I think because the letters are on, are on core values, are on religious texts, and that way they, mm -hmm. it's, these, it's not an academic treatise. These are right. really talking about the issues that I think a wide swath of people really care about justice, how we treat other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, those are just some of the you know the many values, inclusivity, pluralism, et cetera. So they're speaking about shared. Right. What's our common good? Yes. Hope, love. Right. right, right. Things that you would think would be non-objectionable, right? You know that that uh, when when you read these, uh, you you wouldn't have a sense that oh, this is a partisan sort of letter. The it's, it's driving toward what we have in common as much as possible, and obviously not everyone will agree with everything, but, uh, but it, it seems that regardless of where the person came from in their religious tradition or their political philosophy, there is an attempt to, to, to deepen the connection to the American values that we share. Right. right. Yeah. So when we come back from the break, I'd like for us to share one of these letters and uh, talk a little more about some of the, the most common themes that come out of them. So thanks for being with us on Good God. We'll be back in just a moment. Thank you for continuing to tune in to Good God. These conversations are part of a larger program that is called Faith Commons the umbrella organization, you might say, of Good God. Good God is the first project of Faith Commons, which is a nonprofit organization that is intended to do public theology, you might say. Uh, it's multi-faith, not just Christian, Jewish, Muslim, other faiths, but all of them becoming involved in the question of how do we promote the common good together. There are so many areas of need and concern in our community, and Faith Commons is trying to help bridge the gaps uh, between religions and peoples in our community so that we can have a more just and peaceful society. Thanks for continuing to support us.
We're back with Andrea Weiss, uh, who has uh, co-edited this beautiful volume of 100 Days, 100 Letters that is called American Values, Religious Voices. And Andrea, we were talking about these letters, and the very first one uh, is by you. Yes. And I think it would help uh, those who are listening and watching to get a taste of all of that, just to hear your letter read. Great, well, I'd be delighted to read it, and this will also this letter, which we intentionally put first, also lays the, the ide ideological foundation behind the project. Mm -hmm. So, dear President Trump, Vice President Pence, members of the Trump administration and the 115th Congress, at this time of transition in our nation's history, the words of the Bible call to us with clarity and urgency, reminding us of the core values that have formed the foundation of American society in the past and should guide us now as we begin a new administration. In the book, Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, Daniel L. Dreisbach documents the Bible's profound influence on American politics and culture in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Records show that figures like George Washington, Thomas Paine, and John Adams invoked the words of the prophet Micah, God has told you what is good and what God requires of you, only to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And that's from Micah 6, 8. Explaining the popularity of this frequently quoted verse, Dreisbach writes, a commonplace belief among the founding generation was that both individual and collective righteousness were prerequisites for divine favor and vital to the success of the American political experiment. They believed that a self-governing people must have an internal moral compass that would encourage individual citizens and the broader society to behave in a controlled, disciplined manner. That's the end of the quote. Mm -hmm. The message of Micah 6, 8 echoes throughout the Hebrew Bible, teaching us of what it means to do justice and love mercy. The book of Exodus commands, you shall not wrong or oppress a stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or orphan. That's from Exodus 22, 20 to 21. Again and again, the Bible insists that we safeguard the most vulnerable individuals in our midst and treat them with dignity and empathy. The prophets voice this expectation loud and clear, as when Isaiah instructs, cease to do evil, learn to do good, devote yourself to justice, aid the wrong, uphold the rights of the orphan, defend the cause of the widow. That's from Isaiah 1, 16 to 17. Still today in the early 21st century, these ancient biblical teachings about justice and mercy should dictate how we act and determine the policies we enact. Together, let us work to preserve and make manifest the values upon which our democracy was founded. Well, there are a lot of themes in that that are uh, relevant now, even especially two years after the fact, yeah. aren't there? Especially this language about um, doing justice and loving mercy the welcoming of the stranger as we continue to wrestle with our southern border and mm -hmm. different um, different understandings of how we ought to be addressing that and also voicing uh, what we think about the people who are coming and how we behave as a, as, as a welcoming uh, nation or not, uh, as a matter of fact. So, You've sent all of these letters. Um, how do you feel about their effect? Well, um, 
in terms of, again, I respond two ways. So the, the question that people always want to ask about the project is, did anyone in Washington respond? And for the, we sent 100 letters to over 1,000 people. And every day. Every day, at 5 a.m. every morning, right. and I heard from one person in Washington. One person responded. Yeah, the chief of staff for Republican Congressman Randy Holkren, who, uh, re who engaged me a few times in her response to the letters. Um, and in the end, and it was a great dialogue, in fact, with the letter writer who uh, she was, uh, she had, she had qu questioned and raised some issues with one of the letters. And so I sent her comments to the letter writer. He responded and he said, if only we could have this kind of dialogue, if this was the norm, right, you know, that kind of back right. and forth, explain what you mean. And, and at the end, she said, keep the letters coming. They give us a sense of the country that we, we want to live in and help us sort of give this sense of, of what our country is really all about. So it was a, a case of uh, quality, not, not, uh, not quantity. Well, OK, let's just stop right there at this point. And, and maybe we could practice a little religious lament huh? <laughs> uh, that, uh, that we have a government uh, that is supposed to represent us and invite our civic participation. And when we do, we hear nothing in response from them. I, I mean, especially this enormous goodwill effort of trying to communicate uh, things that effectively are prayerful uh, uh, homages, uh, and, and yet crickets. I mean, yeah. just no response. And, you know, to be fair, one letter from a Republican uh, chief of staff doesn't make it partisan or uh, in any sense. I mean, no Democrats responded. Uh, and of all the other Republicans who had that time dominated Congress, no response, nothing from the White House. Um, my goodness, um, frustrating, huh? It, 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 it was, but on the other hand, um, we were, uh, my design partner, Lisa, Lisa Weinberg and myself, we were really heartened by the tremendous amount of feedback that we were getting from the readers. So we knew that thousands of people, both we had subscribers, over 2,000 people subscribed to the campaign. We knew that mm -hmm. through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we had a um, tremendous number of followers and people were reading the letters and, and people were writing to us to share with us what the letters meant as those 100 days unfolded. So really, I think that's an important thing to add to this, that they weren't merely directed toward the people that you were hoping would read them to whom they were addressed. They were also being overheard. They were being read by people who cared about this exercise in democracy, uh, this uh, exercise in uh, religious free speech. Uh, that really uh, what you're saying is the, the byproduct of this effort was to reinforce what kind of country we want to be, uh, what values we want to hold up highest, uh, that sort of thing, right? Yes, and, that, and we were very clear from the beginning that we always had an explicit and an implicit audience. All right. So that we knew that you know the letters were all addressed to our leaders in Washington. Yes. But really, where we thought the letters could have a bigger impact was mm -hmm. on people around, uh, not only around the, the country, because we know from um, the analytics on the website and the feedback we got, they were being read around the world. Excellent. By people who were really people described reading the letters like a um, an anchor or a lifeline that okay. it was a prayer for people. A lot of people read them 
first thing in the morning. Yes. It's a morning meditation. Kind of it just people grounded yeah. people and that really um, just kind of dizzying first hundred days. Mm -hmm. And it was very reaffirming for people. A number of readers told me that it made them feel like they were not alone. Yes. So a sense and this sense of camaraderie, especially in an election that revealed in a sense how siloed we are yes. all, mm -hmm. are all, um, that it, it we, that the letters allowed us to connect with people from who are very different from us, yes. but to see the commonality that we had shared shared uh, values, shared teachings, and that uh, was re very reaffirming for people. Okay, so when we think about um, the American experiment, the, the the nation that we are, um, one of the things that we used to learn about us, right, is that we were really a unique. Uh, offering to the world uh, that we f we formed a nation on different bases from other nations. We didn't have a blood and soil sort of approach to things. We didn't have a sense that you were part of this nation because you were part of an, a particular ethnic identity, right? So as an alternative to that, we had to find some way to ground what would be our nation and uh, some of those values we drew upon were explicitly religious values. Others were uh, enlightenment values of, uh, of uh, human rights and, and, and those sorts of things that we believe were universal human values, which my argument would be they got from religion anyway. Uh, but nonetheless, the idea is we, we founded a country on common values. Uh, and it's interesting that in reading this, the the most often cited uh, verse of scripture from the Hebrew Bible and, and Christian uh, scripture as well, and even Muslims cite it also is this notion of being created in the image and likeness of God and that everyone has human dignity, right? Yeah. Uh, so what are some of the other values that when you, when you talk about the, the hierarchy of values that we say are American that make us who we are, when you counted them up and when you did the work on that, tell us how it came out. How, what were sure. they? Sure. So we, the book includes a, a beautiful two-page spread, color yes. spread, where we highlight the 20 values that really rose to the surface. Yes. And the, uh, the theme that comes up most frequently in letters is justice. Mm -hmm. And as was highlighted in my letter, we see that's just, that is because it's both such a core Mm -hmm. Biblical value. If yes. you think about so many biblical texts, let justice roll up like water, righteousness, righteousness like a mighty stream. It's just yes. that is such a key biblical theme, and it's also a key American theme: justice and liberty for all. So a lot yes. of people quote that. So that's a good case where there's a real intersection between mm -hmm. a theme that's that's prominent in the Bible and prominent in from our from our founding. Yes documents up until the the, the present day. Um, the, the second most common theme was the treatment of the stranger and, and the insistence that My we goodness. not mistreat the stranger. And again, that is, that is one of the most uh, commonly cited biblical commandments. That's after, al along with uh, being created in God's image, that's the Hebrew Bible text or that kind of cluster of texts mm -hmm. that command us not to mistreat the stranger. And in fact, even go farther to say we must love the stranger. Yes. So, um, and I think as I've thought about that, that those texts, I mean, partly we're commanded because in a sense it goes against our very nature, right? Yes. We, we have to be told again and again to, to care for those who are most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So that's a case where authors are, are highlighting a key theme in the Bible, mm -hmm. but it's also very tied in to the events going around in the world 
around right. us today in terms of immigration, right. uh, other religions. How welcome are we going to be? Welcoming are we going to be as a nation? How are we mm-hmm. going to treat the stranger, the refugee? Mm-hmm. So that's that's why that theme is the the number two. Um, readers will be heartened to know that other themes that that are most common are compassion, mm-hmm. freedom, uh, treating the vulnerable, and uh, also love. So those right. are some of some of the top values. And I would say too that there there is a. Uh, a sort of presupposition of pluralism involved in this, not yeah. just in the choice of people that you have who wrote in, in the, this volume, uh, but when we, when we talk about pluralism, uh, I love Ibu Patel's uh, line about this, that pluralism is, is not an American birthright, but it is an American responsibility, right? Uh, right? So uh, what, what we know is, yes, we were, we were founded as a nation by those who came who were generally of one Christian tradition, right? Protestant Christian tradition. And so if you want to go back and say, okay, fine, you know, we, we, we were a Christian nation uh, in, in some sense at the beginning. Of course, that was colonial America. That wasn't constitutional America. Uh, nonetheless, we've been an immigrant nation all along and welcomed everyone and what's happened is that welcome of the stranger and everyone, we decided deliberately that we would respect and treat equally all religious traditions in America. That's, that's an astonishing thing that we're not tolerant of religious difference, but we have full religious liberty. And so pluralism is something that we hold as a value, but it's contested these days, isn't it? Right. Uh, why do you think it's so contested? Well, I think it gets a lot to issues of, of immigration yes. and, and who are we allowing in. There's a great letter by Judith Plaskow who talks about some of the same biblical mm-hmm. uh, verses we've talked about, about treatment of the stranger. And she makes the argument that if you, except for Native Americans, all Americans at some point right. were immigrants. And yes. so, and she raises a question, what if we take our own personal experiences, whether it's our immediate experience of having been strangers to this strange land yes. or as part of our family history and we need to recognize that and that should influence the the policies that we enact how we treat the stranger we need to recognize that we too at one point were strangers we're a week away from the holiday of passover where we say avadim hayinu we were were slaves slaves in the land of egypt and it's that the whole idea of the passover seders who is to make that mythic history part of our own in a way that will influence how we act in the world day in and day out that to say to constantly you know, every year, and as we, as we reread the, the biblical text as well, because that refrain for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, um, every year we repeat that many, many times as a way to remind ourselves yes. that this is part of our history. And that then puts an obligation on us on how we treat the stranger today. Well, uh, this may not be a Haggadah of uh, <laughs> Passover, uh, but it is nonetheless a kind of text that does just that very thing. Uh, reminding us of who we are and calling on us to live into that. Thank you so much for sharing this with us and for this conversation on Good God, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2019 by Faith Commons.